Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom, and think. I'm Edward Bergen, global food and drink analyst, all-round foodie, and as these guys know well, I'm a very big hummus fanatic. In fact, I actually had the Marmite hummus recently. Very interesting launch in the UK. That's all I'm going to say on that one. Over the past few months, Mintel analysts from across the globe have been asked by innovators, by our clients, by the people that we work with, how they should react to COVID-19. We've reacted with lots of podcasts as a result. Um, and we know that there's also a recession happening and it, and it might happen for an extended amount of time. And the big question from all of them is, what do we do about launching new products, about innovating? So I've actually brought some of our, I, I think, our most innovative in terms of um, how they think, but also people that, that focus on innovation at Mintel um, onto this pod to maybe... Uh, shed some light on this topic of what do we do about innovation in, in a recession and as a result of COVID. Um, I've got uh, Lynn, Alex and Dave. Um, do you want to do quick intros, Lynn? Thanks, Ed. Um, I've d- I'm Lynn Dorn Glazer. I'm Director of Innovation and Insight. And as you can probably tell, I'm based in our uh, U.S. headquarters office of Chicago. And while I don't, I have not tasted the Marmite hummus, it actually sounds good to me. <laughs> For anyone who's interested, contact me later. I have a really funny, only in the U.S. Marmite story. So I'll leave it at that and pass it on to Alex. Hi, everybody. My name is Alex Beggett. I'm a global food and drink analyst and have the huge honor of being part of Ed Bogan's team. Um, I work with Ed. And uh, yeah, talking of hummus, I've literally just had lunch and I am a global food and drink analyst, but you know, I'll keep it real. And I just had for lunch a cold kebab, leftovers, followed by a Ferrero Rocher. Oh, yes. Try it. Well, thank you, Alex, for that. Hi, this is Dave, Dave Jago. Um, I've been a mid for practically ever, it feels like. Um, quite a few different roles in that time, but I'm currently sitting in our consulting team. I'm a principal consultant in that team. I spend most of my time looking at food and drink markets and innovation, and I've done for several years now. Um, I wish I could say I had something innovative for lunch, but I didn't. But um, it certainly wasn't a cold kebab, really. Did you have a brown bread roll with food with, with fillings? Funny enough, I did. Yes, always. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so pleased that that, that worked. Um, thank you very much. This is going to be a good one. Um, I, before we get into how should they innovate, if they should innovate, I've got to ask the first open question is, should brands be innovating over the next six months, year or so, um, or should they just focus on core? Innovate. You want to innovate? Innovate? I, I the jump in, innovate. You've got to innovate. Yes. You, you can't, I don't feel you can ever stop innovating, but... You, you know, you've got to think that, yeah, I'm not going to go into it now, but you've got to think about the fact that innovation means a lot of different things. I don't necessarily mean launch new products. Mm. I'm not saying it's not the right time to do that, but there's lots of ways of innovating that have nothing to do with launching new products. So things like innovation, renovation, bringing back. Yeah, yeah, and, and thinking about the channels, thinking about the way you communicate with the consumer, thinking about the way you reach the consumer. Um, yeah, all those other aspects that go way beyond the product and the package. I think if we didn't ever innovate again, we wouldn't starve. If there were no more innovations in food and drink, we wouldn't be starving or pulling our hair out with the lack of choice. But there's just so much that's wrong happening in the mm. world and there's such a need to keep things progressing generally. 
and in food and drink. Uh, obesity, climate crisis, food poverty, racial bias, you pick your battle, but we have to keep innovating to keep things progressing. I'd agree with that. And, and the other thing, too, is <clears throat> um, in addition to the pandemic, we, all, we also are looking at a recession. And one of the things we know from last time, uh, 2008, 2009, was that um, consumers like to have a small treat and food and drink can deliver on that. So having interesting, innovative, new choices for consumers can be, Alex, to your point, exactly what they're looking for. Something that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a treat, something that is beyond all of the doom and gloom, it seems, that everyone keeps talking about and focusing on. Guys, as someone said last time around in the recession, I've got a feeling it might have been the guy that was then CEO of Coke. And he said something about the fact that if we don't constantly excite and delight our consumers, they'll just move on. They'll go somewhere else. And, you know, yes, choice might be a bit more limited in the recessionary times. There might be fewer SKUs on shelf because companies are rationalizing. But if you don't excite and delight your customer, then go and buy something else. There's no shortage of choice. We've, we've been looking back at the, the past recession uh, mm. to kind of get some understanding of you know, how can we prepare for, for what's coming ahead. And, uh, and a lot of the talk has been about how it was big yeah. brands that really did well in the past recession because they were trusted, people were familiar with them. Um, and you see a number of big companies, you mentioned Coke just then, who already said you know, they're going to be focusing on big, scalable brands. Some of the smaller, smaller kind of projects maybe won't make it at the moment. Right. And yeah, that kind of makes sense. And if you look back at the past recession, yeah, focus on your big brands, your A brands, what, what we can expect. Um, people are going to be more risk averse. But at the same time, a hell of a lot has changed in those 10 years since the last recession. The consumer of today is much more expectant of choice. Like you say, you know, we go to the supermarket. Um, we want to see new arrivals. Yeah, we, we, affordability is a big factor, but I just don't think we can underestimate the change in consumer mindset in the past 10 years from the past recession to now in how we appreciate diversity of choice on the shelf. Exactly. And no one's yeah. getting to other behaviours. No, I, lo- I, I, I love it. I'm just springboarding off that. I know one's getting to some of the behaviours that happened this time. The one thing I did see, I know, and if you guys want to just comment, in the last recession, we saw that while there were where consumers cut back, so where what what did they cut back on first when when their budget was hit, and it and it felt like they chose other things, whether it be cars, holidays, luxury items, electronics, and so on. But food and drink seemed to be, and maybe eating out, but food and drink at home especially didn't get hit in the same way. Well, I yes, I'd agree with you, and um, part of that is that small indulgence thing, you know you've got to cut back. So you're not going to buy a new car. You're not going to go on vacation. You're not going to move. But I think what we did see was in uh, many parts of the marketplace, we saw consumers still buying what they needed to when it came to food and drink, but Mm. perhaps for some things downscaling. So whether it was switching to private label or switching to a less expensive brand or shopping more at dollar stores or at um, stores like Costco, you know, whatever, so to get the lower prices that they needed. But, you know, I think there's something else that needs to be thought about as well, which is a 
much bigger issue. But um, so many of these things that we talk about are for those people who still have disposable income. And I think as we progress in the next year or so, there will be that number will be reduced and there will be more people shopping because they have to and buying what they absolutely must and foregoing those little luxuries um, much of the time. So we saw that last time. I think we'll definitely see that this time around, maybe even to a greater degree. Yeah. I think that'll be more pronounced this time around. But I think you're right. What, what will fundamentally change is not eating behavior, but it's, it's, it's shopping behavior. I mean, I think actually with, with COVID, we'll see a change in eating behavior as well which we didn't see in the last recession, but it's not going to be anywhere near as drastic or as noticeable as the change in shopping behaviour. Yeah. That's, that's the first thing we'll see. So that's what I want to talk about, I think. I think, I think what we should do, um, and we've got about another 20 minutes or so, is let's focus on some of the, the behaviours that we feel have been impacted by COVID, but we're also are going to change for the long term, that, that we're not going to necessarily go back to what we were before. And I picked out four, and I'm only going to um, talk about them as we go. Uh, the first one is something that happened almost immediately when COVID hit. And, and a lot of the, the supermarkets have said it, it's, they don't think it's going to decline, which is the growth of online shopping for the grocery sector for food and drink. Um, if you're an innovator, how do you innovate within this space? Do you, is it harder to get a product, a new product in front of the customer? Um, are there certain products or categories that will suffer as a result? Um, so those are kind of my two main questions. Yeah, well, I think the first the first categories to suffer will be the ones that are, of course, the most impulse-led because impulse shopping doesn't work well with online shopping. Um, and that's going to hit confectionery, snacks, or obvious mm. areas like that most. It doesn't mean that sales will go down in those categories necessarily. It will be a balancing out the way those products are sold. So much less on these small packs on impulse. You know, oh, I, I fancy a snack, I'll pop into the local shop and get one. And Marsh Maureen, I think I better have some of those in the house because I know I like them and I might want a snack. You know, it, it's just that, isn't it? So there's a lot more planning, a lot more planned purchase. It won't necessarily reduce the volumes, mm. but it will reduce the opportunity for brands to get in front of the consumer on as many occasions. That's, that's an immediate impact, isn't it? Yes, I think, I think some of that, though, might depend on how um, companies have... Um, uh, optimize themselves online. You know, it's the it's the um, the thing you run into when you shop on Amazon, for example, where you search for one thing, but five or six other things that are similar that have paid to be there have popped up. So I think there is so much learning to be done by so many companies in terms of how to best optimize your presence and where you're seen and how you're seen when shopping online. I do think though about the, about the impulse purchase um, uh, topic, I think what we will see, and it looks like we're starting to see this happen now, uh, especially in the U S is increase in those um, impulse categories of multi-packs of single serve. So it becomes an impulse, but the impulse is when you have it in the home, as opposed to I'm going to go out and get something, you know, things like, and, and strange things like a product that, that has just something that's just hit in the U S is Kellogg has 
giant versions of some of its breakfast cereals. I just came across it. So like Fruit Loops and um, Cocoa Puffs and, and those kinds of, you know, those kinds of breakfast cereals that aren't the little tiny like Fruit Loops. They aren't the little ones. They're big ones. And they're in um, multi-packs of single serve for snacking. Yeah. Yeah. Really smart. I like that. Something else that I think will change actually something you mentioned earlier, Alex, is about the big brains. And I think there's a real opportunity here for small brains. Yeah. You know, because we've seen, Alex, you've read about this a lot, I think, in some of the categories that you look at really closely, about all those small brains that have really come up in the market over the last several years that are very used to having a direct-to-consumer relationship that the big guys would dream of. Yeah. And that's where I think you can see some brands really capitalizing on online sales. Yeah. I mean, you, when you're doing your, your main shop, your big weekly grocery shop online, you often will just be doing a quick bit of research, open a new tab. Okay, let me talk about that product. And it's those guys who've really got that, that to a T, you know, instantly engaging website, lots of information. All that information yeah. can't always come across. The brand character can't come across from the supermarket um, website. I think what um, that also the, the multi-packs taps into some of this really cool uh, new data we've got on people stockpiling more at home now uh, it, it, and, and pledging to do this more as a result of lockdown, uh, having a longer, uh, a bigger supply in their own homes of long life ambient goods. Um, and, it, and it's young people which are really driving this. It's under 34s. You see it across Europe. Um, they've kind of seen the light and the value of having a, an emergency stockpile, if you will, of, of, of products that they don't, because they're obviously in home more, they don't want to be going to the shop too often because of obviously fears out there. But uh, I just think that's a fascinating kind of traditional kind of shopping value uh, that's that kind of emerged as a result of this. Back to the weekly shops, back to the big shop, and therefore online shopping benefits from that because we know that a supermarket can make profit if someone does a $100, £100 shop over a £25 pop topper where yeah. they're not going to make that profit. And obviously that's helping the online industry continue to grow. I, there's something about that that I wonder, and I don't recall what the, what the data says, but for those younger consumers who are doing more of those stock up shops do you would think just you would make an assumption that many of those younger consumers are going to be urban Mm. and have perhaps changed their habits a bit from swinging by the store that they pass on their way home from work to grab whatever with um you know in so many major cities with the the challenges of getting around and all of that you know that it's just easier and feel safer to order it online and have it delivered. I know that's just a, a, that might be kind of an interesting twist as to one of the many reasons why it would be those younger consumers Mm. as opposed to other age groups. Right. Um, We've touched it already, but I want to move to a new behavior. And when we discussed this podcast, we found it really hard to define it. And we've given it a title, but I think it'd be good for you guys to elaborate. This idea of in-home versus out-of-home, which I guess at first is during COVID, we spent more time in the home and maybe in recessions, we would maybe spend more time in the home because we haven't got enough money to go out and spend money out. But at the same time, what 
what the impact might be on once we're allowed to go out again, hopefully, um, will consumers splurge and want to go out? And there's this mm-hmm. debate about, therefore, in the medium and long term, what's going to happen. So we gave it the title In-Home versus Out-of-Home. So does anyone want to elaborate on it? Well, I'll just um, make a brief comment about um, In-Home and um, why... I think that's going to stick with us for a good long time. And that's that whole idea of cocooning. Um, You might recall, it actually was odd that I know this, but um, it was back in the mid 1980s, I think that a um, U.S. futurist coined the phrase cocooning, which was all about, you know, your home is your fortress and, and it's, it's your, um, safety blanket and it's you know it's there to to protect you so let's let's retreat to our homes and that really didn't resonate with consumers until the recession in 2008 2009 and obviously that's what we're all living now uh, all the time is our home is our fortress um, but it feels to me like that idea of cocooning and staying home and being safe at home is something that isn't going to completely leave us I think as we're out and about more and as we're able to be out and about more, um, and of course, very different from one country to another, one city to another, um, I still think we'll we'll end up with this heightened sense of, but home is the safest place to be. So what does that mean for innovation? So while while if you're going to, if that's how people will see home, what products, what services do we want to see more of to help? And actually you can talk about what's, what's already happened over the last few months with that. What do we want? What will we see more of over the next couple of years then? More, pro- more products to make meal prep easier, if nothing else, because you're going to be home cooking meals all the time. One of our, they make, make it more interesting. Yeah. Right. One of our, co- yes. one of our colleagues, Marcia Mogolonsky, um, just mentioned to me this morning that uh, she and her husband ordered food for delivery yesterday. And she said that's the first meal since early June that she has not cooked herself. I know. And I think, as I said, I think a lot of those behaviors are just going to stick with us. Yes. We slow to shake them off. I've got a slight theory on this. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Mm -hmm. you think, but I I just wonder um, over the past few years, it seems a lot of the client requests we've had at Mintel, certainly on my team, uh, have been about on-the-go trends and portable trends and trying to and look at con- innovation in food and drink um, from an on-the-go-led need. And I just wonder whether we've just been so focused on that, we've kind of seen a kind of a creative hiatus in cocooning food or, or in-home innovation. You know what I mean? Um, I just wonder whether now, as a result of this, we will be, yeah, swinging the other way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty about time. You're right. I mean, it's not been a focus for quite a long time. Yeah. There's been so much to talk about on the go, and everyone's talking about the out-of-home opportunity. Mm-hmm. The number of mm-hmm. briefs you see that talk about the out-of-home yeah. opportunity. Yeah, okay. But, you know, you're missing the, the really big ones in the home as well. <laughs> and, I mean, presumably, I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but presumably after COVID, there's still a recession on. Exactly. Some people won't be going out of home so much, but the need for on-the-go will still be there. It's be different. Because you might not be popping into shops to get food and drink on the go while you're out. You might be taking it with you from the home. 
So it goes back to your multi-packs stored in the home that you take everything. Yeah, you take everything. Exactly. It's not a radical behavioural change, but it's got quite a big impact on some categories. Got a really good example. It's my wife's 31st birthday last week. And she got a bread maker for the first time. She makes bread every week. She got a bread maker for the first time. And so... You still get one. Well, yeah. So we showed big one up. But what I loved is going into store and... Not all the brands did it, but we found yeast that said perfect for bread makers. And just things like, even if we're not talking about innovation, we know yeast always existed, but things like those messages are going to be really exciting. We know that there's been examples of, um, I think they're called one pots or quick pot cooking, where there's a particular piece of tech where you throw the things in and it cooks it. And you're starting to see that message, Instapot, that's it, on stuff in the store. This is perfect for that. Yeah. Um, for that device, that that appliance, and and it's not innovating. It's just saying to consumers that it's going to fit your lifestyle now. Yeah, it's, in, it's innovating around the message. It's innovating around the way that's communicated to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And they say it's, it's not yeah. new. It's not new, but it's a really clever, timely piece of marketing. Exactly. And that we've seen. I know we've seen here in the US. We've seen increases in. Um, home delivery of meal kits um you know uh, the meal kits where you have to you have to do all the cooking but everything is there for you um before covid those companies were really struggling as consumers were resistant to the price or resistant to the time they needed to spend or whatever and a couple of them uh collapsed in on themselves i think but since that time we've seen them pick up again and that's answering that consumer need You've got to cook dinner and you've got to figure out a way to cook dinner. Even if you don't know how to cook, you still have to make dinner. Uh, and so it makes sense yeah. that, that, that products like that would have a renewed importance, okay. at least for many consumers. Then there's this idea, we tried to touch on it, we talked about in-home cocooning. What happens out of home? Maybe we're talking medium to long term now. Do we, will we get a point where people are going to go, I'm going out? And we'll see this resurgence of, I'm going out because I can, and I'm not going to get a disease because of it. And, and therefore, I'm going to buy, is it that we need to innovate and to prepare? It takes a year to innovate some of these brands. So let's talk about that. <laughs> There's this uh, kind of underlying desperation to go and have a nice meal out at a restaurant again. Um, and, and, and it's going to be challenging. And there's a huge need to for the hospitality industry, obviously, to reassure um, its diners through detailed, updated, transparent information. Um, but, you know, people know what they're missing. People love eating out. It's, it's just one of the biggest pleasures in life. Um, I think what a big, interesting question is for restaurants would be that what they have on their menus, you know, what, what are they going to offer? Are they going to kind of go to pre-crisis menus with um, reassuring comfort foods likely to be popular among their former diners, their existing audience? Uh, or do you kind of think a bit more forward uh, and ahead post-crisis offerings? You know, maybe something around immunity and preventative health more? I, don't, I, don't seem to I like the, the link into our next behaviour. Yeah. Very good. Well, it's, almost as if, it's almost as if we discussed it. Um, I, have, yeah, I, have a, I have a question though for, for the three of you since I'm here in the US and things I think are a little bit different here. Um, have the three of you gone out to eat at a restaurant or out to a pub to have a beer? And what was the experience like for you? Because I've got some observations on, on that as well. I think it's a little bit different here. I've not been out to eat at a restaurant. 
Mm-hmm. I have been out for a bit. <laughs> Get your priorities right. Yes. I, ditto. I have not been to a restaurant, but I certainly have had a couple of cold, crisp, beautiful pints. Okay. Well. Okay. Yeah, and actually the experience wasn't so different. I've uh, done a few takeaways, which I'm sure some of you guys have done. Um, but I had to go and did a collection for one because it's a particularly good restaurant. So many of the quite funky restaurants that service young consumers, especially, that, uh, that might have fusion menus and so on, they used to do some the mixed menus, lots of vegetarian, but some meat. I've been to three of these quite small um, fusion restaurants. They've all gone vegetarian, all three of these restaurants that we used to go to. Um, and it's almost like some places have just taken the chance to go, we're just going to go plant-based and we're going to do it well. Um, I've seen that quite a bit, talking about preparing for maybe a future. don't know if it's down to expense, down to safety, down to they just that's their customer Supply. base now. Yeah. It was their supply, all these things. Um, but they said they're not going to go back. They're now plant-based, which yeah. I found really interesting. That is um, interesting. I've seen that a few times. Have you seen that as well or...? No, not at all. Um, what we've seen here, and in talking to a couple of restaurant managers at a couple of places that, that we go, that we always used to go to re- frequently, was the first big challenge when they were able to reopen and allow people in. Aside from all of the health and hygiene issues, was the need to cut down their menu to make it easier for the kitchen to manage Um, because they had to do it with fewer people. They had issues with supply, but what I'm finding two things, the menus and to your point, the menus are exactly the same. There's just, it's just a shorter version. So they haven't, they haven't retooled their menu. That's not the right thing for them Mm. to do right now because they've got issues with staffing and getting, the food made and out. And so having to do something totally different is far too challenging and probably far too expensive. But the, as a consumer out in a restaurant, the thing that I found was um, because of all of the uh, hygiene and safety changes that they've made, Hmm. you know, wear your mask until you come and sit down. um, Tables are spaced out. um, We have a tendency to, one place that we go to sit at the bar and eat and the chairs are set up at the bar where it's a pair of chairs, six feet of difference, a distance, a pair of chairs, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Mm. I have to say to a large degree, all of the, the measures that they have to take takes all the fun out of going out to eat. So, well, let's talk about some of those measures and we're going to make that relevant. Um, I don't think we need to spend a long time on it because we've discussed it a lot on COVID podcasts. Um, we haven't got too long left. So I want to talk about two things uh, that are maybe the behaviours that will be really impacted going forward. One is this idea of consumers giving more interest in their long-term health and uh, preventative measures, especially with what's been going on. Um, and... We've also know that certain governments have you know, gone after obesity as a crisis. We've also talked about hygiene as an issue as well. So I just want to explore that for a couple of minutes. And then I've got one final behaviour that I want to ask about. Uh, if I, I'll take up immunity and preventative health. I think uh, uh, this has been coming for a while anyway. We've seen a, a rise in immunity claims in food and drink innovation uh, globally and heightened interest in it anyway. People have got the, the, the sense of preventative health. I think that I almost think that the big focus and challenge is not so much the actual ingredients and nutrients themselves because they are we know what is approved by EFSA and what isn't it's how you communicate 
how the brand communicates on pack and gets, again, is transparent. And that educational role that, that is needed about the immunity support function of these certain nutrients and the sensitivity. If you're going to innovate around immunity, if you're going to have the temerity almost and boldness to innovate around immunity at this time, and so many people have, uh, are so sensitive about this area, then you, by God, you really need to know what you're talking about and provide that evidence there. Yeah, big shift in the way it's communicated for sure. It's just too flat at the moment. I don't think a lot of consumers just don't get it, quite frankly. They know they don't visibly see and that might be about it, really. Mm. People don't understand it. Enough. These are, that's going to change. Yeah, expertise is going to be massive. Yep, exactly. And it feels like you see little bits of that here and there, you know, more talk about gut health and the and the role that gut health plays in immunity. Um, but Same. Alex, I totally agree. If companies are going to successfully innovate, even if consumers don't even begin to understand the science, companies have to have the science and have to be able to talk about it because eventually they'll understand and they'll start to ask questions. Mm. The only other one about long-term health that I think we'll touch on is obesity. Um, we know that obesity and COVID haven't gone well together. Um, and, and we know that there are now incoming rules around calorie counting, that there has to be a bit more honesty around how many calories are in a certain product, potentially from food service more than um, grocery. But what, therefore, do we expect to see from brands around this issue? I think we'll have to see some more open communication around it. But it's, it's a, it, to me, it feels a bit like the sugar topic. I mean, you know, sugar was in the headlines practically everywhere. There's the big new demon, and now the big new thing is obesity. Um, it's actually very hard to innovate around sugar. It's very hard to innovate around obesity um, because it's really about messaging, isn't it? It's about issuing a clear message to the consumer that works for them in a way that they can build into their diet. Um, and that, that's not really about doing anything very differently apart from just talking about it. Okay, that's nice simple. So one last behaviour with the long-term one, I just want you to touch on it because it's going to be a big topic, is sustainability. Um, now, I, I don't know if you agree or disagree. Um, I think consumers have a greater understanding of our planet and themselves and their, their own mortality as a result of this. Um, and um, the world's got a bit scary and long-term consumers will maybe think a bit more about the actions that they take um, because they want to make sure this world is left in a better place and when they leave it. And therefore, the topic of sustainability, while it's been put on hold potentially for a few months, even though it was big last year, um, will come back with a, with a vengeance and a bang. So uh, I kind of just want to touch on it, what, you're, what you guys think. Ed, I love your utopian view of the consumer. <laughs> um, yes, that, that consumers will, will uh, focus more on their health and the health of the planet. I think that's true for some consumers and perhaps a growing number of consumers. But um, I have to think that that personal safety and security, which is financial security as well, always comes first. Um, That's something that we definitely see in the U.S. Um, But but that is always going to come first, especially for consumers who can't afford to pay more for a product that is has a strong environmental message. Um, because they've got to they've got to feed their family. We saw that in the last recession too. Um, I think the hope really lies with the youngest consumers today. That those are the ones who'll be more focused on um, uh, larger health of the planet issues. 
I think it's in, it ties in with uh, this this rise of interest in in meat free and flexitarianism as well, uh, which has given young consumers a way of kind of facing up to the sustainability issue and the climate crisis via their food and drink choices. Um, but I agree, and I think what's coming is terrifying with mass unemployment, and I think people have only got so much bandwidth and pennies to do so much okay so maybe it's a bit of a back burner for a while absolutely might take a few years absolutely apart apart from the simple measures that were ongoing that will keep building that are becoming fast becoming cost of entry for companies in the business a lot of packaging issues for example that's not going to go away that's Mm -hmm. going to become cost of entry anyway yep okay so ending on a happy note and I haven't prepared you for this because we've got to end something on a happy note Um, any innovation that you've seen in the last Four months during this crisis that has been inspiring, has inspired you. Does anyone want to go? Any of you can go. Yeah, there's something that I saw recently from Planters, which is a simple packaging shift. That's all it is. But it makes the, it changes the consumption experience. This is not a new concept, but it's a concept that's very much right for right now. It's um, plastic canister with a, a hinged lid that, that you can pop off. So you can pop open. It doesn't come off. So it's one handed and it's called pop and pour, I think. Um, But the whole point of that is you can open it up and then easily dispense and then close it again with one hand. But what I see is, again, it's that safety and security issue. So sharing with friends or whatever, you don't have somebody else reaching into the, reaching into the bag or whatever it happens to be. You pop it open, pour some out. Um, not a new concept at all. Nothing mm. about that concept. We've seen it many times before. Dave, I'm sure you'd agree with that. Um, but it's but it's a concept that's absolutely right for right now. I'm really looking forward to trying. Where, sorry, when it finally comes out, I'm really looking forward to sit, trying out the um, Diageo Spirits in paper bottles because I think that's something yes. that's really quite fresh and exciting. Yeah, nice. and it's simple because simple stuff can work. Yeah, because it's but, better for the environment. Like your brown it's roll for lunch. It's better for everything. Yeah, you know, don't knock the simple stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> simple stuff. In a recession, simple stuff is brilliant. Exactly. Because it's more, more environmentally friendly, cheaper, more accessible, more inclusive, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you're th- and, are you thinking of the Johnny Walker Black and the black paper bottle? Because that's the yeah. one that I've and seen pictures other, of. Some other yeah. brands as well. Yeah. 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 Great. Okay. So a big thank you. Um, we're, we've done really well and we've covered quite a lot. I'm sure there'll be more podcasts going forward on different parts of what we've discussed. Um, so thank you very much for joining. Um, I'm going to sign off. Um, so to all of our listeners, thank you very much for, for, for listening. Um, please subscribe, rate, review. Um, you can get the podcast on all platforms. Um, so, so keep uh, looking for them, keep sharing them. And please give us five stars because that's always nice. Um, so jump on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook if you want to get in touch with Mintel uh, and catch us next time on Mintel's Little Conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you.